The Old Testament lesson for Epiphany comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 60, verses 1 through 6. I invite you now to listen for God's word to you. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come upon you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you may not know this about me, but I am a 12-time veteran wise man. At the church where I grew up in Denver, we had an annual living nativity that was always a major event. We had real animals, a big stable, and a live cast of Christmas characters that recreated the Christmas story in our church parking lot 
every year. The other two wise men came and went from year to year and even featured my wife, Sunel, in 2015. But I was the seasoned expert for 12 straight years. And the great thing about being a wise man in the living nativity was that our costumes were the best, the most distinct. We had these extravagant, colorful robes, which were a huge step up from the boring gray costumes the shepherds wore. We each donned a different crown, which made us feel so important and special. And then there were the fake beards. Oh, the fake beards. On the one hand, they kept your face nice and warm against those cold Colorado nights. But on the other hand, they smelled awful. Awful. You had no choice but to breathe right through them because they swallowed up your whole face. And that smell of church closet had sunk deep into those lavish whiskers after many years in storage. That whole production was so much fun. Our elaborate wise men costumes were meant to send a very clear and important message to the crowd that would gather to hear us tell the Christmas story. And that message was that we were from far away. We were outsiders to the Holy Family. We were unfamiliar. We were wise men from the East. And indeed, the biblical wise men followed the star a long, long way. They were far from home when they arrived in Bethlehem. While the East isn't terribly specific, it does indicate that these wise guys would have been from Babylonia, the region that is modern-day Iraq, east of Jerusalem. By announcing the arrival of these distant outsiders, Matthew is telling us something important about Christ. Readers realize at the outset of the gospel that Jesus will be the Lord and Savior of the whole world and not just the people of Israel. Jesus is Lord of the insiders and the outsiders, both the locals and the transient, and everyone will have Christ in common. On many occasions, Matthew quotes a specific Old Testament verse and then declares that prophecy fulfilled, as he does in our passage today with reference to the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. But on hundreds, hundreds more occasions, Matthew makes allusions to the Old Testament, and that's what he's doing as he details the arrival of the wise men in Bethlehem. We heard in our reading from Isaiah today that there was an expectation that all the nations would come into God's light, bringing gold and frankincense along with their praise of the Lord. In Psalm 87, God declares through the psalmist, I will mention Egypt and Babylon when I list the nations that know me. And in Hosea, God declares through the prophet, I will show love to those who were called not my people. You see, Matthew is constantly winking at his readers throughout the gospel, such that the better we know the Old Testament, the more clearly we will see Matthew's Jesus. As the wise men arrive on the scene, we see that God is gathering all people around Christ, the newborn king, as so many Old Testament texts anticipate. But it's hard to say whether the wise men or 
magi, as their Greek name goes, it's hard to say whether the wise men were originally good or bad. In Matthew's telling, they exhibit certain good qualities, of course. They bring gifts to the Christ child and bow down in worship. They faithfully follow the star, just as Mary and Joseph faithfully listened to the words of the angels. And certainly the title, Wise Men, indicates their positive reception in the history of our faith. It's even the translation of the word magi that the NRSV gives us. But on the other hand, the magi, from which we get the English word magic, also represented the evil Gentiles in the prevailing tradition of Jesus' time. After all, they were stargazers who looked to the creation rather than the creator for truth and wisdom. Magicians and astrologers who sought truth in this way were disdained as idolaters. Elsewhere in the New Testament, magi are mentioned negatively. In Acts 13, for example, the apostles meet the resistance of certain magicians, as the word magi is translated there. And these magi are called false prophets, and they try to turn people away from faith in Jesus. But Matthew, the evangelist, is delighted to detail the arrival of the Magi in Bethlehem, where, in a surprising move for idolaters, they bow down and worship Christ. How about that? The gospel that ends with the Great Commission to the nations begins with the great invitation of the nations to come and see this child who has been born a king. You see, already in Bethlehem, Outsiders are becoming insiders. The kingdom of God is already dawning. Thirty years before Jesus would begin his ministry, the Jewish couple and the Gentile magi join shepherds and animals around Christ at the center. All of creation is caught up in this momentous event. It's an early snapshot of Christ's redeeming power and an indication that radical differences can be overcome when we kneel down and pay Christ homage. The worship of Christ can supersede differences. Whatever the Magi might have been known for doing wrong, and whatever unfaithful superstitions they might have maintained in their time, they do one thing absolutely right. The Magi approach Christ with worship in their hearts. They bring themselves, their offerings, and their allegiance, and they lay it all down at the feet of the Holy Child. Friends, this is the only way to approach the Savior of the world. Christ can only be known as he is worshipped, because in worship, Christ is assigned his proper place as Lord of all. The question that we must ask if we seek the Christ child is not, who are you? But who are you, Lord? As Paul declares on the Damascus road when he's blinded by the light. Who are you, Lord? If the Magi had shown up to lay some kind of claim upon Christ for themselves, 
surely Mary and Joseph would have driven them away. Instead, they show up to acknowledge the claim that Christ makes upon them, and they bow before the child in humility and faith. Anyone, anyone who will worship Christ is accepted in his presence. So Christ makes outsiders into insiders, makes insiders out of outsiders. It's a wonderful tongue twister full of gospel truth. And the church that worships Christ should reflect the beautiful Christmas reality that Christ brings. There are no outsiders when Christ is worshipped. Worship forms a bridge over the abyss of difference. Notice that as the Magi are brought into the fold of those who worship God, it's not that their differences vanish. It's not that their differences are no longer visible. Mary and Joseph and the Magi remain plenty different. Instead, it's that their differences become secondary. Secondary to the one before whom they bow. Secondary to the one whom they worship. Secondary to the one whom they seek above all else. The Gentile Magi have Christ in common with the people of Israel, which proves to be a commonality more consequential than their differences. It's not the elimination of their differences, but their worship of Christ that makes the Magi insiders to the glory of God. Now, to state the obvious, the trouble is that our society and our world keep wanting to split us back into those categories of insiders and outsiders, good guys and bad guys, chosen and pagan. Division and skepticism and exclusion remain sharp in our culture as this new year begins. And I often worry that the differences that rampage throughout our society will increasingly threaten our community within the church. As far as conflict goes, Riverside is quite a peaceful place, I think, so far as I can tell. We clearly love one another. And we generally handle our differences fairly well, I think. But when I survey the landscape of our society, our political, economic, and social differences seem to grow worse and worse. Virtually everything seems to disintegrate into partisan bickering and disdain. As a divided Congress takes office this week, amid economic uncertainties and global unrest, the year ahead is bound to be much the same, I'm afraid. If anything characterizes the ethos of this present time, it seems to me to be the word suspicion. Skepticism and mistrust permeate the way most Americans view the rest of society that isn't like them. And it would be naive to think that however fond we are of our own church, that we're immune from our culture's toxicity if we're not diligent to guard against it. Because it's all too easy to use Christ to support our existing point of view, and all too easy to refuse to listen when Scripture or our fellow Christian makes us think twice about our own perspectives. Now, maybe you're thinking about them right now, about how they do this. 
But trust me, dear friends, this happens on both the right and the left, among liberals and conservatives, if you want to use those categories. We may share Christ in common, but we also share a common temptation to place the causes and interests we care about most in Mary's lap and bow down before them as though they were Christ himself. For this reason, the wise men in the Christmas story remind us that worship is the most important practice for Christian people. It's the best check on the temptation to think that Jesus is with us as insiders and therefore surely opposed to those we oppose. Only in worship do we pay homage to a common Lord laying our gifts at his feet. Christianity without worship is little more than a worldly ideology. Friends, our worship of Christ has the power to overshadow and remake the division that plagues us as a society. We who gather to worship at Riverside have Christ in common. We worship the same Christ child, the same Lord, the same Savior of the world. This is what is most primary about our Christian identity. We worship a common Christ. We may have our differences among ourselves in terms of how we think about the best version of the world. And of course, it's vitally important to do our best to follow Christ faithfully in the world and to represent the gospel, not only in word, but also in deed. And as such, our differences are sometimes quite stark. This is not an appeal to some kind of idealized wish-dream unity in which we act like we're all the same when we know we're not. But our differences can be secondary when our worship of Christ is primary. That's the point. The Magi and Mary and Joseph were anything but the same. They were very, very different kinds of folks. But they had a commonality in Christ that was more crucial than those differences. And friends, we too have Christ in common. And that's what's most important. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Christ is primary, and our differences secondary. As this new year begins, may we resolve to ensure that it always remains so among us, that we may be a fruitful witness to our own culture and society, that division and suspicion need not be the things to which we pay our homage. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Amen.